Good morning and welcome to Flat Out Recovery. Good morning, morning. Good morning, Richard. And then there were two. And then we're down to two, yeah. Well, it's been this way before. It has been this way before, but... We knew this some time ago, and of course it's only a glitch in the cycle. We'll be back to three or four soon enough, I'm sure of that. It's only temporary, yeah. So how's your week? It's been very busy, very ram-packed, jam-packed, and everything else that comes along with it. Um, chaotic or not? In a good way, yeah. Ah, in a good it's, way, it's chaotic. the way I like it. Yeah, I like being busy. I like, I like to have something to do every single day and be busy. Yeah, it just keeps the weeks rolling on. And then, I don't know, it just makes me feel more settled, believe it or not, that I've got stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I like. But my time management's good, so I can seem to squeeze in lots of different things and still be on time for each and every one of them. So that's another good thing I've learned. Well I suppose it's what matters isn't it, it's, yeah. it's why we keep blathering on about routine isn't it and yeah, about yeah, yeah. organisation and about doing things like diaries and all this stuff because if I don't do that I can become chaotically chaotic yeah. in spite of myself and actually what I'm doing should be reasonable, I've got a list of things to do that should be easily achievable in a week but they're not because I haven't organised them. Well, because I'm like a creature of habit and I like to do the same things at the same times and stuff like that, I, I'm finding I'm not having to rely on a diary because I just know each day when it comes what I ought to be doing that day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Unless that's, it's like appointments and stuff like that. That's uh, why I keep a paper diary next to my yeah. bed. So I look at that. The first thing I see every morning is yeah. paper diary. Which sounds incredibly boring and banal, but actually it does mean that I know what I'm doing. It doesn't sound boring, really, when you look at it. I mean, the fact that it's um, a paper diary rather than a phone or a, an iPad. Oh, I have it on the phone as well. I do, yeah. And on the <laughs> computer, yeah. I have to have it everywhere backed up. You see, just in case I've forgotten something, because the thing about phones is you end up with two separate calendars. Well, yeah. I don't know about you, but I've got an Outlook calendar and a Google calendar. And they don't always sync when they're going to, and they don't like each other. Nah. I and don't. I've even had them sync and then deliberately put things on the wrong day and miss things because of it. I don't use my phone, actually. I don't use my phone or my iPad or anything. I've got, like you, I've got my wall planner, my yearly wall planner on the wall, and that's about it. Well, organisation is everything, and that's why many things have fallen apart in the past, but not now. Mm. I've had a relatively sedate week, actually, by my standards, because okay. I haven't been out every night and I haven't been rushing about with different things. But a lot of that's about winding down after the very busy period I had in January and February. Right, OK. And apart from shock, horror, I know this is going to be broadcast a couple of weeks later, but what was Will Smith doing? Oh, didn't what he was die? he doing? I don't know. It's just ridiculous. It no, but I thought of it alcoholically, you see, because... I thought of perspective on this. Hang on, what Chris Rock was actually doing was he was saying something that he thought he could get away with in public mm -hmm. because there was no way that Will Smith was going to react in front of an audience that was going worldwide. Was there? But he did. Yeah. And it's all in the reactions, isn't it? I wish my reactions were reasonable all the time, but they're not. And I think of stuff like that immediately. And obviously, Will Smith just saw Red and went and slapped him one. He did. <laughs> and as much as it's not funny, and to be honest with you, I'm if that had been a private party, it probably wouldn't have been anything, would it? No, no. But Chris Rock's only saying it because he knows he's got the cameras there and all of that. He thinks that's a safety net. But Will Smith wasn't having any of that, was he? I don't know. I've got mixed opinions about that. It's one I'm a little bit 
peeved with it, a bit angry about it. It's almost like he's got away with it. Although, I don't think he will. But it's just something you just don't do on TV, is it? Well, I think you have a given responsibility, don't you? Mm -hmm. If you're in the public eye, you have responsibilities to behave in a certain way. And the microscope is a lot more close now because this is not like the rock stars of old. No. No, 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 no. Some of the legendary partying of the likes of Led Zeppelin and company. This is not like that anymore. And under the public eye, especially with social media, you've got to be careful what you do with the eyes of the people that follow you and watch you. Does he condone bullying not to take his mental off him and stuff like that? The thing is, there are immediate questions being asked, and quite rightly too. Yeah. Because regardless of what was said, that's not really the way to role model things of course it is it's not really the way to react just because it's understandable doesn't make it okay and it's this thing with reactions the reason why I was putting an alcoholic spin on it was saying well yes a lot of the times I want to react like that or I want to react in a way that's chaotic and offensive and whatever but that's when I'm not thinking about the consequences yeah and we have a given responsibility and it doesn't matter who is going to call it out or who is going to say oh you've offended so and so it's more about whether I'm being responsible in the eyes of the world yeah, and that man is in the public eye all the time whether he likes it or not a lot of children's programs as well um, and they all are they're all in the public eye all the time and the minute they do something like that it doesn't matter who calls them out they've got to answer that with a responsible position yeah it's funny seeing someone like that happen at a ceremony that nobody really cares about anymore. Yeah. Because actually people would have stopped talking about the Oscars by now if it wasn't for that. Yeah, definitely. Because they've stopped being interesting and they've stopped meaning anything. And and a lot of these award ceremonies have been devalued over time in that they don't seem to be looking at artistic value anymore and it's even more of a sham than it was in the first place. And we're still talking about it because of this incident that really shouldn't have yeah, I didn't even know it was Antwerp. I've seen the memes coming through on my WhatsApp groups, and I thought, well, what's what's happened? And then so I got sent the video, and I thought, so there's Chris Rock doing what he does, what he's paid to do, what he knows how to do best is being a comedian. And Will Smith got the ump. Well, I suppose it bothered me. It wasn't a very good joke, you know, by rock standards. Yeah. It was not a good joke. But that aside, it's still not okay. No, it's not. And when I think of all the trouble I have with the way I reacted, and I still have trouble with the way I react. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always have trouble with the way I react in my head, and sometimes it shows on my face, even if I don't say it. Oh, yeah, it does. does, And that's the worst thing, when I don't (laughs) realise that I've reacted non-verbally. Quite often, we react non-verbally without knowing that we've done it. And while that still happens for me, I'm still conscious of trying not to overreact unnecessarily and not to react in a negative way. However, hey-ho, I'm not in the public eye, thank God. We're in the semi-public ear. Well, I suppose so. Well, we are in the public ear, which is fine, so we can talk about these things. Anyway, what have you got for us this week, media-wise? Right, media-wise. So this week I was looking at an article which is the, and it reads, largest ever increase in funding for drug treatment. So... I don't believe it. When I read it, I thought, well, this it's quite a positive one. Bollocks! Um, to be, it can't be true. To, to be fair, and it's saying that they... When I skip down, it says that the government's new strategy to tackle drugs sets out a bold, long-term vision for the next decade. It is designed to cut crime and reduce both the supply and demand for drugs by getting more people into treatment. 
breaking the cycle of crime driven by addiction and keeping drug-related violence out of neighbourhoods across the city. Which city? In, all, um, well, well, yeah, actually, say city. Where's um, the article from? This is in the .gov website, so... Uh, oh, oh, right, it's the government website. Well, actually, right. I was... It was an article in a paper that was talking about this new system, so I just clicked onto the the new thing. It says it's going to be a world-leading treatment system which will be developed for those... World-leading? World-leading. You, you mean like our world-beating test-and-trace system for COVID <laughs> that cost 38 billion fucking quid and didn't work? Well, yes, it's, it's going to be world-leading. And they say they're going to be fronting up £3 billion over the next three years. That's a billion pounds per year. And all local law authorities receive new money for treatment and recovery within the 50 local authorities in greatest need. So why is there no evidence of this? There won't be, will there? There never has been. No. And there's never been any evidence. And all the evidence I've seen is services being cut. What it also says is illegal drugs carry a cost to the taxpayer of nearly twenty billion pounds a year. In what way? In every year, and almost half of all burglars and robbers are committed by the three hundred thousand heroin yeah. cocaine addicts. Um, I suppose it's just to the the cost of the NHS and the police and the this that and the other. Well, yeah, I can believe that. And so, the police and uh, but if it's costing twenty billion, it's costing them twenty billion having to spend. Surely they would want to put more than one billion in. Well, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, they thought they could save 20 billion. Especially as it was quite clear from the Carol Black report, and it's quite clear from various other sources that the answer is treatment, not yeah. punishment. Not treatment, not punishment. And yeah. it's all well and good for the government to say this. They said this about the NHS, they said this about nurses, mm. but of the 50,000 new nurses they were going to get, 30,000 were already in post. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a cynic on this. Yeah. I do not believe anything this government says it's, it's and, hard to isn't it and i'll believe that there's an increase in funding for treatment when i see it it is when you see it i've done work with other services in the course of this process and what i've seen is i've seen people being laid off mm -hmm. and services being cobbled together yeah 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 and third sector organizations having to take on various things that should be taken on by councils mm -hmm. Where is the rehabilitation option for people in Birmingham? We're getting fewer and far between. Now, a billion pounds sounds all well and good, but is that a new billion pounds? Because I don't believe that. No. What I believe is that they have changed the way that they fund it, so mm -hmm. they're saying it's a yeah. new billion pounds, yeah. when it comprises the money that was going towards it already. Or going to some aspect of it anyway. So if they were already spending one and a half billion, it could actually be a reduction. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And forgive me for being a sceptic, but, no, but I you're see... absolutely right, and I think it's good to bring out these ones, because, you know, they, they will fill us with positive, get everyone going, yeah, yeah, because some people will only read that, and that's it in their head, that's it, because they haven't got a clue about how much... And then that becomes that the headline in the red tops, and yeah. that becomes the headline in the government-supported papers. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is, with something like treatment, we have to see the evidence that it's happening. Course and with anything like that, there has to be evidence and it has to be felt on the ground floor because that's where it's happening. It's not happening in some boardroom, it's not happening in some political quango. It's actually happening when someone comes in off the street looking for a detox.
there's a little tiny little bit of a breakdown. So for example, they're spending 15 million, 15 million pounds on drug testing and arrest through police forces across England and Wales. So again, they're now criminal. But that's, pun that's punitive. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Nine million on tough consequences out of court disposal scheme, which will make sure more people using legal drugs receive irrelevant. So again, they're just jumping back into punishment rather than... Because that's what it's really about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's it. It is what it's about. It's, we can't face the fact that shit, we've got a problem here. We've got a pandemic and all Well, it is a problem. And also, when they talk about this levelling up agenda mm -hmm. and the fact that you've got far more poorer areas in the north, mm. a lot of those are ex-council estates that have been left to rack and ruin. And they do leave And they're them, disenfranchised they? and they are disempowered. Mm -hmm. These are people who don't engage with the overall process in what's happening in the country mm -hmm. because they're just living in the shit they're living in. Mm -hmm. And of course they're bloody angry. And of course those areas are full of drugs and crime. But if you're actually gonna level up, you need to put other money into other areas like education and provision for kids. And this idea that, okay, let's have a big headline, we're spending one billion on drug treatment, you've already proven them wrong. And I haven't even got to the, just the, to the bottom of the article or, or, or the... Yeah, because the first bit's about the police, <laughs> which has got nothing to do with treatment. I just think that they just haven't got a clue, and I think it's just easier for them to say, right, right, we know what to call you, you're a criminal, so that's it, that will stick, you're a criminal, you've robbed the local grocery store or something like that, so... Um, three strikes and you're out. Three strikes yeah. and you're out. And that's it, you're done. But Do you think that in order to reform what happens with treatment and recovery, something needs to come from the top experientially? That you need someone advising on it who's actually been there, done that? Yeah, but it goes against their agenda, it will go against their plan, won't it? I mean, is it like what Matty says, that it's a conspiracy and they know what's going on behind this, they know exactly what's going on behind In part, them. you could say, look, they don't care, yeah. because there's plenty of evidence that our current government don't care about poor people, don't care about ill people and so on. But also, there might be this, we can't be seen to be soft on this. We have to be seen to be tough on crime. And because the papers are constantly trawling out this stuff about criminal drug addicts and wasted alcoholics and drunk staggering around and addicts going and stealing things, if that's the narrative, then these people who live in the nice little leafy suburbs, they want tough on crime. Mm -hmm. They don't want to see any drug addict. And therefore, if the government is seen to be soft on that and going for treatment, mm -hmm. then they lose votes. Is that part of it? Is. is it partly the it would be embarrassing for us to be the one country that does this yes yeah 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 I think there's an element of them not caring and I think there's an element of them just going not in my backyard let's sweep it under the carpet that estate in Middlesbrough no one's ever going to hear about mm. unless it makes the headlines over a murder but we can quash that with the papers no all those forgotten places in Liverpool in Manchester in Sheffield in Birmingham in Newcastle everywhere those forgotten towns, they'll all go away if we just don't draw publicity. Throw everything that they need into one council estate, like your local gym, your local shop, your local this, that and the other, and then put a fence around. There's one night. Basically, yeah. it's escaped from New everything York. To Let's put them all in this ring fence place. Ghettos. There's a place I know, I don't want to mention the name, I don't want to offend people that live on there, but I've been there and it's, it, they've got absolutely every 
think they need in a perimeter and it's quite hard to get to. Well, it's not hard to get to, but it's off some busy main roads and yeah. you just wouldn't even know it was there. You circle it all the time and then unless somebody's told you, you say, I've, I've been there and I've been around, they've got their own school, they've got the library, they've got this, that, and they've thought, this is built and you don't have to leave. And it is a rough estate as well and there is loads of trucks on there. Mm. It's, I would stress to anyone hearing this, that these are opinions in terms of the way yeah, the government 100%. is or is not handling it. In this country, in my experience, I've never seen any government take a properly proactive stance on drug and alcohol education or on the recovery process. And well, I think we're a long way away from that. And just because this has happened in certain progressive governments, for example, in Portugal, and also there's a very different tolerance of things in the Netherlands, mm. we are draconian in the way that we approach it. And there are all sorts of barriers placed before people in recovery if they're trying to get back to work. There are all sorts of issues for anyone who is using street drugs or anyone who is homeless because they're drinking. There's all sorts of stuff that get in the way and the accessing treatment is difficult these days. Mm. So forgive me for not believing a word the government says about increasing money for drug treatment. Mm. I said the previous wrong. Well, I would like to think that at some point this will be proven wrong and at some point someone will be appointed mm -hmm. who actually knows how to sort this out and does it. Because actually it would save money to treat people instead. There's another dimension that could come out of if they tackled it properly and used the people that have gone through it and learned from them. The ones that have got the degree in addiction, the ones that have been through it that could teach other people, get them into employment. There's all sorts that can be done from it, but it's just very narrow-minded thinking. And another thing that they're probably doing is just how bad is our addiction problem in this country compared to other countries? And if in comparison to the numbers, that well, well, not too bad, then maybe is it a problem that they need to be looking at? It's reaching a point where you might as well stick a huge wall at some point when you get to the Midlands and just say, oh, that's the North, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Stick them up the north, stick them up the north. Well, you wait, you wait until the campaign for independent Yorkshire gets going. Yorkshire has a bigger GDP than Scotland. So right. if Yorkshire went independent, it could rejoin the EU. Now that would be really funny. Yeah. Independent Yorkshire, <laughs> President Sean Bean. <laughs> we're, we'll rejoin the EU. And <laughs> you wait. All I can think of is, what is it, Emmerdale Farm? Oh God, you no, not that. On Emmerdale, they have all these kid actors and they're all from the same bloody training place in Chester it yeah. is. And they go on to Hollyoaks and they go on to Corrie and they go on to Emmerdale. And they've all got this accent that doesn't really exist <laughs> because it's a cross between Lancashire and Yorkshire. There are slight similarities between Lancashire and Yorkshire, even though as a Yorkshireman I don't want to admit it. Yorkshire and Lancashire do not particularly mix, apart from when they have to get on a rugby pitch or on a cricket pitch at the same time. Mm. And this idea that all these people up north speak with this generic northern accent mm. is just bollocks. See, there I am getting aerated about what really matters. Not this government is funding on bloody alcohol and drugs. It's about the misappropriation of northern accents. And... Right, this is just a quick one. Right, okay. Children at risk. Right, this is Sky News. Children at risk cuts to alcohol addiction treatment coincide with increase in parents' heavy drinking. So it, all straight away, it's just 
you just don't know what you're reading these days. It's up and down. Like Where's that from? <laughs> this is from Scorrow News, but it's actually for this area that we're in. So room. this is saying there's been cuts? Yeah. <laughs> it says some 65% of drug and alcohol treatment services saw their local authority funding cut or left the same between 65% between 2019 and 2021 and 57% of councils do not have strategy to support the children of alcoholics almost 3 in 10 councils said they would either cut or hold flat their budget for drug and alcohol treatment services into 2022 fantastic so we've just that's like I don't know it's Sky News but Actually, no, it's more significant than this kind of news because yeah. Sky News, if anywhere, would be supporting the government stuff. They'd be flying the flag for the three billion pounds. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. actually, for them to be saying services have been cut. Well, they're saying that this is just highlights another problem that's due to the pandemic. Uh, more adults are, are becoming dependent on alcohol. It was inevitable, wasn't it, that there'd be more problems with alcohol and drugs because of the pandemic because nobody knew what the effect would be of having that lockdown and everything that's gone since and the effect on people's working lives on their home lives on their finances we now have a cost of living crisis on our hands and all of this was bound to result in more trouble with alcohol because it's the socially available way to get off your head and of course it's legally available and it's more financially viable than using street drugs too mm. oh yeah you yeah. can be a raging alcoholic without being that well off whereas you need a lot more money if you're going to take heroin and crack every day it's very significant that you've come up with those two and it's just because because if you think about it ronnie on the one hand the government are saying this mm. and then it's sky news calling them out mm. 60 something percent We've cut. It says also. And no strategy for children of alcoholics and addicts for over half mm. of this council's haven't. Well, the other 44% of council, it says, but despite this, 44% of council areas have seen referrals to addiction treatment falling. One council, Solly Hull in, in brackets, said referrals have fallen by nearly 50%. Is yeah, that but that's because, because they cut <laughs> services in Solly Hull. Yeah. And also, is it like, oh, it's that denial thing, isn't it? In Solihull, they cut services. I know they did, because I was at the place where they cut the services. It's just... <laughs> I was there. And I that, know they cut. And that's the Ferris wheel news. And Solihull, and we know well, living in Birmingham, mm -hmm. that Solihull is a not-in-my-backyard yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hope I'm not offending anyone from Solihull here. I'm talking stereotypes, and really I shouldn't be. Yeah. But, no, we do know that Solihull is certainly more affluent than Birmingham and therefore it would not face the same problems with homelessness and also that you've got an almost divided authority haven't you because yes. you've got North Solihull and South Solihull mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and where changes originally had the detox at Clarity House was in Chelmsley Wood mm -hmm. which is North Solihull mm. and that's a very different place mm. than South Solihull so yeah there is an element of pie-in-the-sky thinking because yeah. in the main part of Solihull you would not find several homeless people walking up and down the main street every day mm -hmm. whereas in Birmingham you can't miss them mm -hmm. and that is culturally different and it's it's obviously financially different those two places yeah definitely but it's significant that services are being cut in the way that they have that concurs with what I've seen but the referrals have gone down it may be that 
it's the third sector that's picked the referrals up. Possibly. That's the other possibility, yeah. because the reason why the third sector is stepping in in the way that it is, yeah. is because it's necessary and because it's going to have to carry the weight. Mm -hmm. The reason why the third sector is having to carry the weight is because services have been cut. Mm. So on the one hand, Ronnie, you've got the government saying we're giving all this money and then everything else is contradicting them. Contradicting. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe in what I see. Yeah, well, we're just here to just and what present I what yeah. we find in the papers. And for this week now, we have the first half of Neil's Neil and Matt's interview with Bob. So let's have a listen to this. My name's Neil. We've got Matt is over here. I'm all right. Yeah. And we've got a special guest with us today, Bob. How are you doing today? Would you like to introduce yourself? I think you just did. Didn't you? <laughs> Hello, oh, Bob. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I've known Bob for a few years now and I always remember the first time we met Bob. We was in a 12-step fellowship, it was a CA meeting and um, it was an afternoon in North London in Palmer's Green. I heard you share back from the floor. Once I heard you, I noticed you then and then I looked at you and I saw some peace in you and then what came out of your mouth really attracted me. I'd like to know, how did your journey start? in the fellowships. How did it come about that you walked into the rooms of the 12-step fellowships? I guess the obvious first line is there was a whole lot of drug use, you know, that got unmanageable and out of, out of whack. When I think about my story, the remarkable thing isn't really my using. I don't really have a lot to say about that other than it led me to the point where I needed to get a hold of myself and get a hold of my life. The drug that got me in the rooms was cocaine. I wouldn't necessarily call it my drug of choice. I guess my drug of choice was probably weed, really. But I worked in the city. I was a stock market trader and I guess cocaine was an occupational hazard, really. It allowed me. I never really got on with drinking. I wasn't a particularly good drinker. So cocaine, it was a performance enhancing substance in terms of how much I could go out and drink with clients. So there you go. So I used and I've heard it said that you go on until you find a drug that's bigger than you, you know, and cocaine was that drug for me. I don't know. I, I kind of had a 10 year speed habit. And the way I got to put that speed habit down was when I switched to cocaine. And I'm really glad that I made that choice, really, because uh, ultimately cocaine was much more sneaky and able to rip my soul and the rug out from under my feet much quicker. So I feel like a curve that was an inevitable downward curve was just sharpened by that switch of drug to cocaine. And I'd say two or three years of cocaine use was enough to see me have to walk into work in the city and I'd kind of run out of excuses on why I wasn't showing up for work and I walked in on a day on Easter bank holiday, 1997, and sat down in front of my boss, and I think he was expecting another lie for why I hadn't shown up for work. And much to his surprise, I said, I've got a drug problem and I need some help. Yeah, he was taken aback by that. He said, ah, oh. he said, I really wasn't expecting that. I knew that I had no choice. Lucky for me, a friend of mine had been in recovery for about two years at that point. And we'd had conversations where he'd 
pointed me to the fact that there was a way out and that rehab was a very good option if I could get it. But I guess the important thing was, here's somebody I know and trust, and I'd seen him model the fact that you could get yourself out of the very deepest hole or that there was a way out. So, yeah, I think that gave me the confidence to be able to walk in and actually sit down in front of my boss and say that. So, um, yeah, being an occupational hazard, um, yeah, they hooked me up to go to rehab and off I went there for five or six weeks. So it sounds like to me like you surrendered, you've come in and spoke with your boss at the time and it was all part of the first step, like as we've come to know in the 12-step fellowship, you've given up the fight, you've surrendered, as you put it, something you found which is bigger than you. And then you've gone on to say that you've spoke to this friend of yours who's giving you, telling you that there's a solution to this problem. I think the important thing was he showed me there was a solution. I'd seen this guy that was smashed to fucking bits. Can I swear on here or not? Be your natural self. Okay, good. Watching a friend of mine who I had seen smashed to bits for so many years and I thought he was going to die really rather than pull out of it and seeing this miraculous recovery really and truly and consistently gave me the faith, man. Gave me trust. Right. And you know, that was good to lead on to my next question because I was going to ask you something along the lines. I would call it blind faith, but you said it seemed like you had a bit of faith because you see this working in the life of your friend. You know, you see this guy who was maybe just like yourself, maybe, I can't speak for you, but his life was out of control due to the fact that one of the main reasons was that he was taking copious amounts of whatever his drug was and that his life was smashed to bits. And then you seen him turning it around. And that gave you a bit of faith. And how important is faith to you in your recovery and in life in general? I guess what he gave me was hope. I think faith comes with a little bit of, with that hope turning into a little bit of positive experience of myself. Then I feel like that faith grows, you know. But I think at the point where I walked through the door, there was hope. I've seen that this can work for him, you know, because we all have this idea that, yeah, but it's different for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm special. Yeah. 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 Or I'm the opposite of special. Oh, yeah. 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 That's why this won't work for me. You know, it's either or, right? It's both two sides of the same coin. But yeah, so I guess he gave me hope enough that I was willing to walk in there. You said blind faith, Neil, and, and it kind of brought up a picture of that initial throwing myself into the process, right, of going into rehab and walking into my first meeting as a part of that and what that looked like and felt like. And when you said blind faith, I see that also what that really felt like at the time. I guess because as much as I had hoped that I could stop using coke, for example, previous efforts at making change in myself or getting my situation more manageable, previous The sort of happiness or fulfilment wasn't really even on the table. It was just to get a bit of a handle on it. So, you know, previous attempts at changing my patterns and habits of using. I'll only use every, you know, controlled drinking or whatever. All those efforts that I've made already have never brought me really what I want, right? So that was my experience. So really, at the point where I go into rehab and where I go into the meetings, what you call blind faith, I feel like at the time was desperation. Okay. 
I feel like I didn't have any other fucking move I could make because shit was getting really real and at a rate that I needed to pull myself out of that nosedive because for me, at, at that point where I went in and begged for help, I was about to lose my job and the curve that is going downwards gets really steep at that point. Now I've got real reason to bury myself in drugs because so I hear your blind faith but at the point of jumping off it felt more like desperation I didn't have another move to make I didn't know what else to do so I was willing to do the unthinkable yeah. I was willing to surrender end of the line I can identify with what you just said so much right, I'll give this a go and if this doesn't work I don't know what's going down yeah can you recall any sort of pivotal moments out of that desperation of when your early recovery, I need to do this or I need to do that, or where you gained more faith, the pivotal moments of being like, this is going to be all right, I'm going to be okay now. Can you recall any moments of what, or a thought process that was engaged in that interaction? Yeah, I hear that. It's kind of what I was saying, the point where hope turns into faith, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like a pivotal moment was attending my first meeting, or maybe my second meeting. I went to a treatment centre that had meetings taking place in its grounds for several different fellowships. Yeah, I guess maybe the first one, but I think certainly the second one. The first one I went to was AA, and, you know, I guess maybe I was just overwhelmed by the newness of the experience. But I went to my first CA meeting on the Friday and I felt like I was amongst people. I was among kind of my people. I saw and heard people that had been in the same place as me, really understood where I was coming from. And I saw that they were in a different place. Okay. They weren't where I was in that moment. They'd been there, but that was the very first thing. Now, as much as I'd seen it in my mate, it's almost too close. It kind of inspired me and gave me hope. But I think the faith that it could happen for me was in that first meeting where I felt like, ah, oh, OK, I've landed here in the right place. Yeah. I mean, amongst people like me, I felt the energy that was being expressed by these people and consequently shared amongst everyone yeah. in that room. And for me, it was electric, you know? Yeah. Believable. So for those who may be new to recovery, there is an arm of the fellowships. It's called H&I, I mean, it stands for hospitals and institutions. And they come into like treatment centres and such like, and try to carry the message of hope, faith and courage, or of recovery, one should say, in these places. So was that the case or was it just a case of like there was meetings going on on the grounds or was this a H&I collective, what was happening there, Bob? I was in the Priory in Southgate. Okay. They had an outbuilding where AA, CA, NA, OA and all <laughs> so many different fellowships on different days of the week came in and had meetings on the ground. So we would go to that. Yeah. And there is an alphabetical thing for the fellowships, isn't it? You could go A to Z with all the top step fellowships that's right there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I can't even imagine how many there are now. Back in those days, CA... There were seven meetings a week of CA in the country. Yeah. There was one a day. 
I think. I think there was actually one day in London where there wasn't a meeting, but there were six in London and one somewhere else in like Bournemouth at the time. CA was quite a young fellowship. fellowship. Now I can imagine there's 20 a day in London, you know. <laughs> yeah. Easily, yeah. I got a bit curious about how many. I think there's 470, all in all. Here we go, we've got Four, stats, people. 466 of round about 470 12 step fellowships regarding wow. all different ailments, or you've got depression, you've got OCD, you've got gambling, you've got 470 yeah. <laughs> different fellowships. Yeah. Well, I was on a meeting yesterday, and I was, I don't know why I was surprised to hear this, but it's um, Nicotine Anonymous. There you go. <laughs> why not? You know? Like I said though, Bob, I'll come back to the beginning when we introduce you to the programme and like they say, you get attracted to people's recovery and I was attracted to the facts, like I said, there was a calmness about you. What I got from you, Bob, I got you down, I've got to let everyone know this, <laughs> got you down a sabbatical Bob in my phone and the reason why I put down sabbatical Bob right here was you just reminded me of somebody who could maybe you're sitting in front of a tree and just meditating and it's not a problem, you know, for maybe days on end with your little green tea set next to you. Leading on like your spirituality entwined into the program, coming through the stages of where you've come from, those early days and then building on your recovery. What's your spirituality? How did you kind of move into that realms of spirituality, which I believe you have? Maybe you're going to inform me of something different now, but that's my belief. That's what I was attracted to. That's a big jump in time. To go from that point where I'm sitting at my first meeting, drinking up that, oh, maybe this is the place that I finally found my place. What I would say, looking back now, is that that was the start of my going into rehab and coming to the fellowships was the start of me working on myself. Yeah. That was the beginning of getting used to speaking in front of people, to getting vulnerable, to getting in touch with my feelings and beginning to look at Bob and the mechanics of, you know. At the beginning, it was just to stop the pain. So coming into the rooms was the beginning of a journey. You know, looking back now, right, I mean, at the point where you met me, Neil, that date where you saw it, I'd just come back from eight years in Thailand. I was in a very different place than when I walked into the rooms to begin with, but I was in a very different place to, to where I was in life when I left to go to Thailand, yeah. you know, when I went off, off on the sabbatical that you speak of. <laughs> that might even be the only time in my life that I've used that term... <laughs> about my life journey or that period and uh, you were sitting in the room there and it went into your phone and it's remained ever since. Yes, I took a sabbatical from the life that I was living here because in spite of the work that I'd done, there was still something missing. The coming into recovery and the finding initially just the balance enough to not use today yeah. and probably not to use tomorrow. And actually, I can imagine I'm not going to use in the next week. And in fact, I ended up 14 years after coming into rehab. I found myself in a place in my life where I'd say those first five years that I spent in recovery, I went to meetings multiple times a week and I did a lot of service and I really laid a good foundation in balancing myself, steadying myself. And yeah, that was good. But... I found that there was a certain amount of work that even just, I guess it was how I chose to navigate the program and sobriety 
left a certain amount of personal work undone. So I went off and I had some one-to-one counselling, I'd say from five to ten years clean. But mostly I got on with living a normal life. I was still working in the city. It seemed like life was all right. Using wasn't a problem. But there came a point in my life where I had a series of losses. My marriage fell apart and then I lost my job in the crash of 08. And yeah, at that point, I just had a realisation that something was missing in my life and that it had been missing the entire time. That all through my life, in spite of my successes, in spite of the money that I'd earned, in spite of the houses that I'd had, the cars, the wives, the sex, the drugs, that it had only ever really temporarily fixed something. And that fix didn't really last very long. So, I, yeah, I stood there in a moment, just literally as it felt like my life was imploding and I just had this realisation that, yeah, something's up, man, and it's been up for a very long time. There's something missing in terms of me. There's a, a sense of lack that lives in the heart of me that has never gone away. And something in me said, there's more to life. You need to make a different choice here because this ain't working out. 14 years sober at this point. So drugs weren't the problem either. So yeah, something in me said, you need to look into this. You need to try something else because if this was going to work out, you'd have had a clue by now. So yeah, it said, there must be more to life than this actually was the simple line that went across the screen of my mind. So I knew that I just had to change. It was kind of like that first time when I'd come into rehab because I really didn't know what to do. Right, the second half will be out next week. Yeah, I always find the spirituality thing is a... It's a biggie. It is a biggie, but... And I think it's important, I mean, certainly listening to what Bob said about that, I think it's important that we acknowledge that it's huge and that everybody takes it in a different way. Yeah, it is taken in a different way. It's, yeah. I don't think a spiritual awakening is a singular, definite thing. There is the idea of people having this sudden revelation, and there's the idea of people having a gradual one, and there's some people who just can't get their heads around it at all, but they're still sober. Well, I think it's down to the person themselves, and I think it just comes to a moment of clarity, and it's that clarity thinking and all that that could yeah. be a spiritual way. And I'm not dismissing, uh, you know, a moment of clarity of being ungodliness, but because I believe it absolutely is. My personal belief is that, that exactly what it, that's what that is. I think all of us who find recovery must at some point have had a moment of clarity because otherwise we'd never have gone to treatment or we'd never have gone to the rooms. Of course. You must have had that moment where you thought, fucking hell, I can't do this anymore. And that, for me, is enough. I've never felt that I was floating on the cloud or or seeing great revelations or anything. However, something has shifted Mm -hmm. and that's enough for me. I don't need to hypothesise or philosophise about it. It's enough. Yeah. And we have come to the end of another show, and it gets quicker, it gets quicker. Maybe we're getting better at it. Maybe we're getting better at it, I think, yeah. Well, either we're getting better at it, or we're shortening the programmes, I don't know. I don't know, maybe Um, we've just learnt time travel and all that business, and we've squashed it all up. Time management? In the the future, we'll be able to just sit here and, like, click, and it will all be (laughs) done. Click our fingers, and it'll be done. (laughs) No, that'll be because some machine can read our thoughts. What a horrifying idea. 
Anyway, we will love you and leave you. Uh, yep. If you've heard anything today that has resonated with you or makes you concerned about anyone you know, anyone close to you, then please look for help. There is plenty out there. You can just Google rehab and you'll find something. You can always get a hold of us on podcast at changesuk.org, on the Flat Out Recovery Facebook page, or on Twitter, we are Flat Out Recovery. So have a wonderful week, a wonderful weekend, and we'll... Goodbye for now. We'll go for now. Bye.